City Council to say this is what we feel you should do and then it's up to the City Council to determine what you will do. But we will always look at the impact to the active employee and the retired employee and the fund as a whole. And then the City Council, based on the code, the policy that you set, you will determine what you do and do not do. But we will always come to you saying this is what we believe should be done with our fiduciary hat on. Today we're going to talk a little bit about um, the fund itself, how the fund works, and the impact that a few things may have on you. One is a COLA. Every time you consider a COLA for retirees or actives, how that affects the fund. And, um, and the other thing we would say, there was a period of time where the fund was funded. The balance of the fund was considered to be funded at 100% of what the liability was. And for a period of time, the sitting city council did not contribute to that fund. And after that, we went through some very serious down markets, and the fund dropped fairly significantly. It has rebounded, but not to 100%. We feel very good about where it is, but it really could, and one day should be at 100%, possibly. But we would ask that the current city council and your, um, those who come behind you avoid doing that in the future, that even if you are, in fact, funded at 100%, we would always ask that the city contribute because of the smoothing effect and the highs and lows of the market. So um, that was something that did occur. We would ask that it not occur again, but it's certainly up to you whether or not you do fund. We will always ask for contributions. Chris, what would you like to add before we invite Fiona up? Uh, just that currently the fund is about 79% funded as of the end of this year and has about $990 million in assets. So close to a billion dollars for the citizens who are active or retired, and again, just barely touching 80%. We were at 100%, believe in the early 2000s. 110. 110%. Okay, it's even worse. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Um, so, again, our goal is the same as your goal, and that is to take care of our citizens who work for the city or have retired from their use of service at the city. And that is when each of us walk into that room, we take off our personal hats, whether we work for the city as a current employee or whether taxpayers, and really say what's best for this, uh, this group of individuals who rely on us. And that's... That's the hat we put on when we sit in that room. So I would like to invite Fiona, who is, in fact, our actuary, to walk you through the um, aspects of a pension fund, for lack of a better term. Some of you may have heard this before. We always think it's a great reminder, um, considering that some people are new. And if you haven't heard it since a year, just a great reminder for you. So thank you. And you have the presentation here in front of you. <coughs> No, maybe. <coughs> Turn it on. Hello. No. I'll stop. Talk. Try and talk louder. Okay. Um, I'm going to step through some slides. Feel free to stop and interrupt me if you have any questions. Um, we're going to talk about an overview of the pension plan. Give you a little bit of a feeling for how it operates and how. Um, benefits are calculated for the individuals that participate in it. I'm going to talk about uh, historically the funded level of the plan. Stephanie gave you a little bit of a hint that used to be much, much better. It got worse, and now we're on our trail towards getting better again. We've got a little model that allows us to project and see how quickly we're going to get to that 100% funded mark again under various market um, situations. Uh, and finally, wanted to talk a little bit about the financial impact of offering ad hoc goals. So first of all, on page three, 
This is a defined benefit pension plan. Um, a lot of people in the um, the regular world, the real world, the non-state uh, and city government world, get their pensions from something like a 401k plan or defined contribution plan. In those plans, the member and often the employer puts money into the bank, it earns money, and when um, it's time to retire, what you do is you take that lump sum of money and you figure out how you're going to spend it to cover your expenses for the rest of your life. The defined benefit pension plan, what happens is there's a formula that says this is what this plan is going to give you as a benefit from the day you retire until the day you die. Uh, and it's really up to the plan sponsors to try and figure out how to get enough money into it to be able to cover those benefits. So here's how the benefits are defined for the two different types of um, participants <coughs> that are covered by the plan. Uh, general employees are basically the non-public safety employees. They can retire at age 60 or at any age, as long as they have 30 years of service. When they do that, they're going to get a benefit that's based on the highest three-year average pay at the time that they retire, times their number of years of service, times a multiplier, which is 1.75% per year. Um, you could retire earlier, at as early as age 55, or if you have 25 years of service, but if you do that, plan is going to be paying you over a longer period of time than we anticipated, so the benefit's actually reduced. Um, there are only ad hoc COLAs. There's a lot of, uh, especially state plans and some local plans that give you an automatic cost of living increase, it's like the CPI or something like that. Uh, but in this plan, the only cost of living increases that are given post-retirement are on an ad hoc, ad hoc basis. Um, prior to retirement, there are some survivor and disability benefits. Those are uh, come into play before the person is eligible to retire. Um, and to help offset the cost of this, the members are asked to uh, contribute 5% of their own salary for each year that they're an active participant. When did that start, please? That started. Um, that's Recent, a good question. Recently. Recently. Yeah. 2010. And from 2010, it was only for people that were hired from 2010 forward. And then I believe two years ago, that was expanded to everybody that's had been in the plan since prior to 2010. So that was kind of a two-step process. Yes? Andrew? Um, you said asked. I, I just want to clarify that verb. They're asked to contribute. It's optional? No, it's not optional. I'm sorry. They required. Were required. So, okay. Yep. Anything else? Okay. Public safety is a similar situation in that there's a definition of the benefits you get and when you get it. Um, but they are eligible to retire with fully unreduced benefits a little bit earlier at age 55 or 25 years of service if they get to 25 years of service before reaching 55. Their benefits are 2.5% of the, the average of your last three years um, times years of service. There's a, a cap of 65% of your final um, average pay. They can retire also similarly five years earlier with a reduced benefit um, and the same COLA provision, member contribution, and survivor benefits apply. So that's just to give you the framework of what it is uh, that this plan <coughs> provides to the city employees. Yes. Um, could you highlight, uh, other than what's already listed there in terms of age, the difference between the general employees and the public safety employees, why there is a difference in the percentages and how the tax ramifications for public safety employees play into that decision? Uh, I, can I, I know a little so. bit uh, about that, um, that when I was the counsel for the retirement system, the uh, compensation rate 
was the same, and a previous administration was uh, providing REXIs, early incentive retirements payments, because the belief was that public safety officers, if they were not going up into desk jobs, were having physical jobs, and they wanted to create a retirement system that incentivized them to leave at about 25 years if they were not going to the desk. And so they kept it at 65% uh, um, and paid 2.5% for a year so that at their projected goal of retirement at, after 25 years, that is what caused that change. The desire to not incentivize public safety to stay beyond 25 years. And is, am I correct in understanding that public safety doesn't—they um, don't have uh, social security taking that, out? That is correct. Nor do they receive it after they— Correct. Okay. I was just wondering if that was factored into that decision as well. It, it, it was. It was not. Sorry. Thank you. So what I do as an actuary is try and figure out how to balance the funding of the pension plan. Again, as I said, for a defined contribution, 401k plan, whatever goes in and whatever it earns, that's the benefit that goes out. But in a defined benefit plan, those um, provisions that we just discussed determine how much money goes out and at what speed. Um, employer contributions come in, employee contributions also come into this system. and this is a pool of money that's being invested to help pay for those benefits uh, when they come due. The size of the tank here is supposed to represent the size of the liabilities that we're funding for. And I'm going to show you a chart uh, pretty soon that shows how these tanks have grown over time. We always expect them to grow because we've got um, people getting closer to retirement, we've got people getting pay increases, we've got people continuing to work and accrue one more year of service. Um, one of the key things that uh, funds a pension system is investment earnings. The money inside this tank is taken and invested in the market by the, uh, by the Board of Trustees. And they try and invest it in such a way that they make uh, investments that are going to bring in a lot of money, but not so much that uh, we have a lot of volatility between years on those investments. Because this is very key, this investment earnings dial. Uh, what I like about the tank diagram is that you've got this sort of ballcock mechanism showing that if you have more money, this floats up, this pulls this out, and you get more in from investment earnings. So the more you have invested, the more help that you're going to get from the markets. Um, the tank right now is full to about 85%, as we'll see on the next slide. Um, it has been uh, higher than that in the past, but as we all know, there's been kind of a rough time during the, uh, during the first part of, of this century. So this is a, a graphic that just shows the size of the tank from 1999, which is as far back as, as we could grab the statistics, to today, 2016. The size of these bars is supposed to represent the size of the tank, which, as I mentioned, grows over time. Um, here we've got two different lines for, for the, the money that's in the tank, the assets. Uh, the green line is the market value of assets, and you can think of that as the real money. And that is the real money that's in there to pay these benefits. Um, but when we actuaries try and pull that tank together and, and adjust the, the valves, we don't want to move them too far because of an event like we had in 2008-2009. So we put an asset smoothing method on top of it. And our asset smoothing method uh, basically takes one-third of the difference between what we expected the assets would be 
than what they really are and recognizes that and leaves the other two-thirds as a cushion in case there's a reversal. And in fact, we saw that from the big downturn between 2008-2009. If we'd gone all the way down here, the plan would only have been 69% funded. And the uh, contribution requirement would have absolutely ballooned in that one year. But by only taking a third of it, we allowed the market to recover. Um, and so the, while the contribution rate did have to go up, as you'll see on the next slide, didn't have to go up by quite so much. So this graph showing that back in the year 2000, the plan was actually 132% funded. Um, looks like there was either assumption change or a benefit change here that brought the liabilities up, and we saw a lot of that back at the end of the 19, uh, 1900s. A uh, lot of people in response to what they saw in the markets with the big run-up in the 1990s, <coughs> they cut contributions and they increased benefits. Um, but then we saw kind of a softening of the market, followed by this, and we're in a, uh, a recovery period now. Ms. McClellan? I'm sorry. Sorry? I really like this. I like numbers. But. Good. So, <laughs> so between 99 and 2016, you've got a fund that's essentially doubled in terms of the actual value uh, based on your great bar chart. Um, the liabilities. Yep. The liabilities. Um, are people living longer? Have we doubled our employees? I mean, why is that? Why is that bar gone up so much? Yet we're still at eighty-four percent versus one hundred twenty-eight percent. Well, the reason the bar goes up is, for one thing, yeah, you hire more people. Um, you also you also pay them a little more every year. I mean, people get pay raises, and that goes right to the bottom line when you think that the benefits are based on the final average earnings, right? And we project those earnings. Um, you also have people getting closer to retirement. So when I calculate these numbers, I look at every individual person in the plan. We put some assumptions about when they're going to retire, and then we, we project their benefits and we discount it. We discount it currently using a 7% assumption. So every year that you get closer to your, your retirement, your benefit goes up by 7% just on the present value So the basis. average age of Team Norfolk perhaps has gotten older. As it has a little bit, and, and actually, again, we've seen this in, in all of our plants across the country. It's the baby boomers. We're all getting older. We're approaching retirement, right? And, and I, I'm one of them. I'm one of the people at fault here. <laughs> so, it's safe to say uh, the discount rates come down a little. Too. The discount rate has come down a little. Yeah, there have been uh, a, a few times when assumptions were changed. Between 2011 and 2012, for example, you can see there's a bit of a jump here. That was the last time that we reduced the discount rate from uh, seven and a half down to seven percent. Will you remind the uh, city council folks what the purpose of a discount rate is or an assumption rate is? Sure. What it is is if I go back here, whoops, we're basically trying to keep this in balance. We would love to have this water get to the top and just hover there, right? But we know there's going to be a little sloshing here and there. But again, um, we have to make assumptions about how fast this is going to go out about how fast this is going to come in. And if we think this is going to come in at 10% per year, that would be great if it actually happened, right? Then, then all of these contribution valves could get cranked way down because we didn't, wouldn't need as much money. Uh, unfortunately, that just hasn't been happening. We're in a much softer economy right now. And so, again, across all plans that we've seen, people have been scaling back their assumption about what we can get from this valve. 
So we stepped back from seven and a half to seven five years ago. The board is about to embark on another experience study this spring, which may result in reducing um, that assumption one more time, just because we always want to be pleasantly surprised, unlike what we saw here. I have a question. Yes. Hi. Do you find that the employee contribution holds at the 5% that is required, or do more employees have a tendency to invest more, stay at a stable rate, or lower their contributions to their retirement? Well, again, in this plan, it's not a, it's not a choice. Uh -huh. It's a, it's a right. requirement. But in all public sector plans, that is one of the elements of funding that has changed over time. During the 1990s, when the stock market was going nuts, and you had all kinds of plans that were 120, 130% funded, that's when you saw people that had member contributions drop them either reduce them or drop them all the way to zero. But since then, we have seen a number of plans do exactly what this city did, and that is to reinstate them and or increase them, because there's got to be a trade-off to try and make up for such a huge market uh, adjustment. So again, it, uh, it could come down in the future. It's purely up to, I guess, the council to make those kinds General of decisions. General Assembly, I think, is what you said. Anything else? Um, he was mentioning to me that the General Assembly mandated that was probably for VRS, right? And then the city that did follow that. Right, we just right. followed that as a model. Right, city followed. Okay, on page six, we've taken uh, the information on page five and turned that into what does it mean for uh, the city's contribution rate and the member's contribution rate. So. These bars are showing the actual physical dollar amounts that came into the plan by virtue of member contributions and city contributions, and it's red in millions on the left-hand side. The line is the city contribution rate as a percentage of payroll, and that's red in percents on the right-hand side. So you can see in 2010, for all future hires, the 5% member contribution rate was instituted. So in 2011, we have a very tiny little pink because that's just everybody who was hired in that one year was making 5%. And then we had more people, more people, more people. Between 14 and 15, I think it was 1115, uh, the 5% contribution was extended to all active participants. So you can see that made a big difference in the monies that are coming in to fund uh, the benefits. This was a half a year, this is a full year. So we can expect this to grow you know, at whatever the growth in payroll is from uh, from now on. Just kind of leaped up here because of the history of how it came into uh, into existence. Uh, here's the three years when the city actually made no contributions at the end of the 1990s when the plan was 133% funded. Um, after the plan came out of that situation, contributions jumped up to about 13 and a third percent of payroll. Um, they grew a little bit over time and then when we got to the events between 2002 and 2009, you can see there was a market increase in, uh, in the contribution rates going forward. So right now, um, the city con contributed 17.79% uh, of pay for the fiscal year ending June 30, 2016. Currently, they're contributing 18.53% of pay. Questions about contribution graph? Now we'll look a little bit at the future for the crystal ball. Um, what we're showing on this graph is the top is the projection of the uh, tanks, which 
are projected to continue to grow. The liability is going to continue to grow over the next 15 years. And the lines here are the assets that are also projected to grow. There really are two lines here. There's an orange line for the smoothed assets and a green line for the market value of assets. As of the last valuation, the, um, the market value of assets was still a little below the actuarial value. Excuse me. So that means that it's going to take us a few years to absorb the rest of that loss uh, unless there's a reversal in the market return uh, and then uh, things might go the other way. Down here we're showing both the, uh, the member contributions and the employer contributions as both percentages and in dollars. So here's the 17.79%. that's actually being contributed uh, FY 2016. 18.53, we're expecting that to go up to 19, 19.15, uh, 19.58, 19.91. Finally gets to 20% of pay out here in FY 2021. And again, this is assuming the, the plan earns exactly its assumption of 77% uh, over this time period. And we've got payroll growing over this time period as well. So that is the, uh, the projection. You can see that we're, the plan is still kind of hovering around 84, 85%. Uh, clearly, that's going to change in terms of what happens uh, in the markets. It could go wildly better. It, uh, it could lose ground again. I mentioned that the uh, board was undertaking a study of assumptions. So one of the key assumptions is that discount rate, that investment earnings assumption of 7%. Uh, and I was asked to show what that would look like if it were to be reduced again by another 50 basis points to 6.5% annual returns. So if that happens, the picture is similar looking, but a little bit worse funded. We start out at 80% funded uh, instead of the 84% funded that uh, we're at using the 7%. And the contribution rate that was 18.53% jumps up to being 22.1% right off the bat, stated in the sort of the 22 to 23, 24% of pay level. Um, that's if we feel that uh, investment earnings projected in the future are going to be a little lower than the 7% that we're assuming right now, and assuming we make no other changes to, uh, to the assumptions that are used to value the plan. So the reason we're, we're uh, considering this assumption change is based on our consultant and the projection of the asset classes that we're in and how we're allocated, um, it does not appear from our consultant that we will, in fact, earn 7% over the next 10 years. And I don't even remember how far out it goes, but it goes out a pretty far way. So our goal, again, as fiduciaries would be to see, well, what will, what could it earn? We don't know what it will earn because we, we don't know what's going to happen. But based on the asset allocation and the market projections, if we were to move it to 6.5% as fiduciaries, that may appear to be a better assumption based on real expectations. We can say the assumption is 8%, and then we fund it based on if we get 8%, but we don't want to do that. We don't want to make up an assumption and then have the fund funding go down even more dramatically. If we do something like this after a great study, and it does suggest a higher percent of payroll funding from the city, that is still a city decision to pay or not pay. That's where I talk about the two independent bodies. We have one job, you have another job. Our job is to look at the plan, your job is to run the city. But when we present to you what the plan can support, that's the only hat we are wearing. We are not wearing the hat of whether you can afford to pay it. We're wearing the hat of, based on the information that we know, 
what should the plan structure look like. And then it is up to city council to determine how much you, are, you can afford to pay and are willing to pay. So that's, the, that's where we are wearing two different hats. Mr. Riddick? Yeah. So what would be the benefit of changing your assumption? You'd be, you, you would uh, be going from 7 and then believing that you would be earning 6.5%. Yes, sir. So we believe that if, in fact, we will really only earn 6%, it's a right. disservice to the model to throw a number in that we don't believe we will hit just to make it look better because our goal is to really create this fund that can support the active retirees who go out on disability and, excuse me, the active employees who go out on disability and those who served their city and then retired that so we can pay them this defined benefit. So it, it does affect payroll. It does affect the city budget. But our plan is about what should happen if it could be fully funded based on the, the, the citizens that this plan is designed to support. And we look strictly on the facts of what our consultant will tell us from an actuary standpoint, what our consultant will tell us from an investment standpoint. And those are really the only two things we have. How many people are in the plan? How old are they? How old will they be when they start drawing? How much money do we have in the plan? And what should those investment returns be? In my own personal account, I can say it might be 15%, it might be 5%, but when we're only talking about our own money, that's one thing. We're talking about a big fund like this, we're probably a little more conservative than someone might be with their individual investment accounts. So how would it affect our budget? We'd have to contribute more? That is how it would be. According to the current um, drawing there, it would, again, if we went to 6.5%, based on a lot of study before we would make a change like that, it would affect payroll. So the city payroll, uh, I think, was 18% of payroll before, and it would pop it up um, to 22% of payroll. What kind of dollars is that? Um, that would go from about uh, $36 million to about $43 million. Are you looking at all the other key assumptions at the same time? We are. We are. So we are. It's, it's absolutely. Are there any ameliorating assumptions? Mm -hmm. Is the assumption on pay increase projected to stay the same or move the opposite of the return assumption? And again, that's something that we will definitely get into as we do the experience study. That is a possibility that there are going to be some offsetting assumptions. There have been in the past when we've done these things. Um, but again, you haven't we have done to, the pay piece yet. We haven't done oh, the pay okay. piece yet. We haven't done the experience study. When we do the experience study, a piece of it will be the six and a half percent assumption. We wanted to just show you that if we did it, and this is this was the recommendation, this is what it would look like. But we haven't factored anything else in yet, and we will before we come back with a change. If we come back with a change. Any other questions? Is, is the fund is it funded at seventy nine percent as this gentleman said or eighty four percent? Is your say? Well, now using a spot rate. So you're probably using a smooth rate. Yeah. When we do the uh, the calculation of a contribution rate, we look at um, the the smooth value of assets. So on this blue line here, it's 84% funded. If we just look at the market value of assets, which is the green line, it's 80% funded. Last year, they were the same number, so it was easy. But this year, they've separated. And back here, they separated in the other direction, where the market value was 69% funded and the actuarial value was 86% funded. So it's a good question. I mean, 
for different purposes, the answer is a different number. Yeah, as, as a board, we're looking at month to month how those assets are changing. So this is this is kind of the current value as of. So I mean, what should, what should we feel like right here at this moment that our fund is funded at what level? At what level? I think we would probably use the actuarial value yeah. of eighty four percent. Yes, sir. Because. When, when, uh, I would just say because um, we don't take the highs and we don't take the lows in any given year, we smooth it out over three years, and um, and that is for the benefit of the plan and the retirees and the active members, so that it doesn't have a direct hit as it did in 2008 or 9, whatever year that was. When KMB was here um, recently, they mentioned that the retirement fund took a, a hit in July, and so <clears throat> did that reduce us from 84 percent? Well, how did we take that hit and still be? <coughs> So the market value that Chris mentioned a moment ago is, in fact, month to month. We're updating that number. But since we don't run these reports except annually, because we take a one-year a one look at it, in our monthly meetings, we look at the actual value of the assets every month. But from a reporting standpoint, we do that once a year, and the once a year takes into this three-year smoothing. So both numbers are right. The 79% that Chris mentioned um, reflects an increase or a decrease in asset value over the summer, saw it go down. And then in December, he saw it pack back, pop back up. There was really happy with December market returns. But it's it floats around a little bit. But once a year, we do a formal report to the members and the plan and our CAFRA and all the things we do, and that is based on this smoothing so we don't make any rash movements because of one month's performance. No, I know nobody knows the answer to this question, but with this new presidential administration, how do you think the stock market is going to react? Um. So, uh, <laughs> you're just having to pick six. So I think what I would say is that it could go up and it could go down. <laughs> do we have a historic reference of what our assumption was versus actual? Um, I believe we do. I don't have that here with me, but we don't change the assumption very often. Um, in the 10 years that I've been on it, we've changed it once. And it was five years ago. And before that, I really don't remember when it was done. Um, I don't know what the look back is, Andrea. That's a great question. We, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I think it was last done in 2001, where it went from, I believe, eight to seven and a half. And that's that report that you referenced earlier. We actually have a we, we will do, yeah, we do an experience study pretty much every five years. So there's a history of them that uh, they have in the retirement office. So as part of the experience study, we look at here's what we thought was going to happen, what was the actual experience of what did happen. So part of that is the investment return. Part of that is payroll of pay increases. Part of that is we projected that 82% of our employee base would retire. Was it really 79 or 85? So there are lots of factors that are, that are in there. Mr. Thomas? What do we compare this to? Do we compare it to other cities in similar circumstances? Do we compare it to all investments? And then how do we stand up in comparison? Are we, are we doing better or worse than Generally, you compare it to a peer group of other public sector pension plans. Um, there are various surveys that are put out. Some of them are specific to local government. Some of them are broader. Um, I have the one that's put out by the National Association of State Retirement Administrators, which does have uh, more than just state plans in it, but their um, average 
funded ratio as of June 30, 15, because I don't have to, thank you, the more recent one was 73.7%, and that would compare to your 85%. So you're actually doing better than average by quite a bit. And how about our return on investments? How does that compare? Um, again, I don't think they have those. I mean, they'll have those statistics but not necessarily over the same time periods. Are you talking um, about the actual return or the yeah. assumed return? The actual. And well, that was the next question was going to be assumed. Okay. Uh, how have we been doing competitively and then are we sure. projecting similar to others? So I don't know how we are doing compared to actual because it's really based on your allocation. If I'm 100% stocks and you're 100% bonds, our, our performance should be very, very different. So I, I don't know that. I do know that the cities and the state, when we did our last survey, around the state of Virginia at least, we were not a high, um, we were not on the high end of our assumed rate of return. There are cities who have higher assumed rates of return than we do, and we have been on the conservative side. When we dropped from 75 to 7 last time, we were one of the first plans to do that. And my gut is that if that happens again, we'll probably be um, and that same path is that we would be ahead of some of the other plans, and many plans followed, many did not. We just feel pretty strongly about trying to come up with something that seems actual as opposed to hopeful. Mr. Riddick? Yeah. You know, a few years ago, I, I think I read that forced to borrow money to uh, fully fund their retirement, um, and I don't know how that ended up. But uh, in dollar amount, how many, uh, if we were, let's say, if we were at you know, 79 or 80%. To fully fund the uh, account, how many millions are we talking To go from 80% to 100%? Yeah. It's about a billion dollars. Yeah. yeah. Current liability is about $1.25 billion, and we're around a billion. So what do we call how much? 200 million-ish. If you were to write a check today, I don't think we're suggesting that you do that, but we are suggesting that you try to catch up. But I, I don't. I don't think any of us are suggesting that you go from 80 to 100 percent day one. We are asking that you try to move towards it. Mr. Riddick. Yeah, uh, I was thinking. Um, <clears throat> I was talking to uh, our previous finance person before she left. What would uh, adding 500,000 or a million to the uh, retirement fund do? Would it Would it do anything, or would it just you know be a, a drop in the bucket? Well, um, I don't know. If Fiona, you have anything to add? I would say the more money, in theory, the more money you have in your bucket, the greater income you get off of that or return you get off of that. Because if you have a dollar in your account, you have 10%, you get 10 cents. If you have $100 in your account, you get the same 10%, you earn a lot more money. I don't know what the offset would be in terms of your interest expense. To, to put it in quantitative terms, a billion dollars roughly, 1% move in the market is $10 million. So $1 million add to fund is only going to move at one-tenth of one percent. It's not really going to do good. I would suggest Mr. Smeagle? Um, so where we were after the projected uh, future is to digress a little and talk about the cost of living increases. Those of you who were here last year have heard this, but those who were not probably need to because I think it's an important uh, thing to understand. Um, the city under the current accounting rules has to take the value, un the unfunded value, the emptiness in that tank, 
and actually put it on their books as a liability of the city. It's a relatively new thing, um, just started really last year. Um, and there are a lot of accounting rules that surround how we, we as actuaries measure that liability. And one of them has to do with the COLAs. Um, if you were a system that paid an automatic CPI-linked COLA, an automatic 2% every year, or whatever it was, when I calculate the size of that tank, I would need to take into account that COLA commitment because it's a promise, it's, it's in the plan document. Because this plan only offers COLAs on an ad hoc basis, the numbers that we're presenting as the size of the tank and the underfunding um, are all without any future COLAs built into them. However, there is a provision in the accounting standards that says if you have a historical pattern of granting ad hoc COLAs, um, then we need to treat that as if it was a substantive plan promise of future COLAs and run the numbers as if they actually had a COLA in them. Um, it's a facts and circumstances decision as to whether there's a pattern, a historic pattern that exists, and it's really based on what, uh, what the city's uh, auditors say when they look at, uh, at the finances. So on page 10, we're showing you a history of ad hoc colas um, and the fact that from 2001 through 2008, I think that almost anybody who looks at this would say there was a pattern of granting ad hoc colas, right? Um, that there was one uh, of varying sizes, but pretty much every year for an eight-year period. Um, right about 2007, 2008, the standard came out that uh, the, the Government Accounting Standard Board was going to be treating ad hoc colas this way. And also, the plan uh, lost a lot of money, like all other plans around the country, between 2008 and 2009. So for uh, three years, there was no COLA granted, which I think effectively broke the pattern, if you will. The COLA was granted in 2012, then nothing again in 2013. Um, the, the reporting under the Government Accounting Standards Board, which had this COLA provision in it, was effective for the plan in 2014, for the city in 2015. And at that point, you started getting um, these supplemental COLAs, a one-time supplement that was paid to a certain group of eligible retirees, which isn't really the same thing as an ad hoc COLA, but it is starting to look like a pattern again. It's not going to nearly have the same kind of impact as these COLAs would, but I just think it's very important to understand that when a COLA is granted, if it starts to develop uh, the look and feel of a pattern, it's something that I'm going to have to take into account as a permanent planned feature, and that's going to increase the liabilities. And what would that do to the contribution? It will do this to the contribution. On page 11, we're showing you kind of a sample of what it would do to both the liability reporting and also um, to the contribution. So under the current plan, here's how, how much emptiness is in the tank, $206 million. Uh, it's 84% funded. Here's the uh, city's contribution rate as a percentage of payroll and also in dollars. If a determination were to, make, to, to be made um, that now you're actually in the habit of giving a COLA and it averages about 1% per year, um, then all of a sudden the liability would increase. I'm sorry, that's this one. If you were just to give a one-time 1% ad hoc COLA, sorry, and there was no determination that this was setting up a pattern, but you just wanted to give one. This is what it would cost. It would increase the liability by about $9 million. 
Um, we'd spread that over uh, five years, and it would be about $2 million per year increase in, uh, in the city's contribution. However, if this happened a number of times and there was a determination made that that constituted a pattern, that on average the plan gave a 1% increase every year, instead of increasing it by $9 each year, we'd have to suddenly jump up and increase the liability by $111. The plan would look like it was 77% funded, and the dollar amount in city contributions would increase by almost $11 million per year. And would the reverse be true if prior to the 1% you had four zeros? So for your five-year period of data, would you not have a lower uh, amount than the uh, $215 million hole? Yes. Right. Wouldn't it be the first column if there's no the, Well, the first colon? column is no COLA. Right. If if or you just gave a 1% and then nothing else. 1% over five years. Right. Mr. Smigel, what defines a pattern? What's that? It's, it's a facts and circumstances decision <laughs> that has so to be. Three years of a 1% ad hoc could be considered a pattern? It could, yep. But the supplement, the supplement is not considered a pattern. The supplement is now approaching the point where it could be considered a pattern, but it wouldn't have nearly this big an impact because it's not compounding. It's, it's not given to everybody, a, and it's just a 13th check. Yeah. So if you, we have the supplements, if it's close to showing a pattern, but you added a 1% ad hoc, would they factor those three supplements in with the ad hoc, or does it kind of start over? Because 1% uh, for everybody is different than a supplement for different employees over the three years. I think you could probably years. make an argument that that was not really a pattern, but again, it is a facts and circumstances decision that's not made by me or you, sure. it's made by uh, the auditors. Yeah, I just have a question on page 10 there. Uh, you have the total down for the increased uh, contribution rate of 2.75, yep. and you have it highlighted. Why would that be highlighted when that's a uh, addition of 16 years worth of contribution? Because of the way in which these were calculated. Um, it seems like it would be a 0.17 per year or something like that. Yeah, but I, what we're actually saying is that right now the contribution rate is 18.53% of pay. And of that, 2.75% is just to pay for previously granted ad hoc COLAs because they're being paid, these were being paid over a 20-year time period and it was a rolling 20 years, so there's still a piece of this payment for the COLA that was given in 2001 in this 18.53% uh, current contribution rate. Excuse me, Mr. Grossman. Does it make a difference if the supplements are coming out of the general fund as opposed to the retirement fund? As far as the determination for I, I suspect matter. that's why we haven't heard anything from the auditors to date, is that okay. this is just a pass-through right now. Right. I mean, you could do these as a pass-through as well. We would just need $9 million instead sure. of, you know, something something in the 100000s range. Dr. Woodman? I, I just to clarify what Mr. Colts just said, um, that it's been coming out of the general. It has. I... I'm aware of that. That's why we put. That's why we put zeros here for the impact on the contribution rate because it was a pass through. Also, that was only given to a certain number of employees. Yep. Who had a benefit that was below a certain level. Yep. Mr. Riddick. Yeah. Um, well, as we get rid of our new budget, uh, a group of retirees have been meeting with various council members to um, 
see if the council would uh, consider a COLA. Now, for the last uh, three budget cycles, looks like we've been giving uh, a supplement. And so if we decided and that we're going to say, okay, take a deep breath and give these uh, retirees, and not just a particular group of retirees, a certain percentage. Mm -hmm. And if we haven't done it these last three uh, budget cycles, and it would be an ad hoc. So how would we be looked at? How would we be viewed? Um, since um, this would not be a pattern if we just did it now and just didn't do it again for a while. Because I think you mentioned a pattern. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Yeah. And, and again, I can't speak for the auditors. But right. If I was looking at that, I would say that one ad hoc COLA does not make a pattern because it's been broken up. Okay. But you're going to have to be very, very careful for the next three years to show that you're not establishing a new pattern. But the other thing you need to know is that just 1% were estimating would increase the, the liability by $9 million and increase the contribution rate by about $2 million per year for the next five years, just, okay. just to give you a ballpark for what it would cost. So if we, if, if, so if we, if we did that, mm -hmm. uh, we could pay it off in four years? Five, five, five years, years is what we're spreading it over. And, so, and, that, and that's just at 1%. Right. But if we're 2%, it would be how many million? It would be double that. It would be, uh -huh. uh, be just about $4 million per year. $4 million per year. And that's us paying for it out of the general fund. Right. Not reinvesting, not taking money out of the retirement. Right. Well, you, you kind of are because you're paying for it for five years. So it's like oh, you're taking yeah. a loan out of the retirement. These are, um, these were straight pass-through, right? You weren't borrowing anything. You're paying for them in one year. If you wanted to do that the same way, then for every one percent, you need to put nine million into the fund, so as not to put any strain on the fund to pay for that cola or to loan you the money for four years to pay for the cola. So giving a cola would, in fact, impact the fund negatively from a funding standpoint. If we're at eighty percent now from a market value, or eighty-four percent, I don't know what the number would be, but it's, it would go down. One percent. Right. Sorry. Okay. Uh, and then we just did some projections again. If the plan were to have a, a permanent 1% COLA, there was an interpretation that the ad hocs had been given in a pattern. Um, then you see we started 77% funded. This would be the progression over time. You see there's a big jump in contributions in the first year, and then they continue to increase from that point to right around 26% of payroll. Uh, this one I'm not sure I even want to show you because it's the heart attack one. That is, if you wanted to give, well, somebody asked, why don't we just give a CPI link cola? Because the CPI has been pretty low these days. But our CPI assumption that we build into when we do the tank is 3% per year. So a CPI link cola, the plan would be 64% funded. The uh, city's contribution would drop, jump up to about 74 million dollars in the first year. So I don't think you really want to be considering a CPI length automatic. I think what they were asking for actually was two thirds of the CPI. Okay. Similar picture, not quite as dire. So last year when we were discussing this and we went to the supplement, um, one of the things that I brought up was the amount of employees that were not getting the supplement mm -hmm. from the previous two years. So in the 2016 supplement, there were more employees that were included because we changed the threshold of the income level that they could do it. Um, 
I would be curious to see, say, um, if we gave every employee a $500 supplement or every retiree a $500 supplement, what that actual cost could be. There was never, nobody ever gave us an actual figure because I think it was being based off of what extra money was being, was left oh. after that period. And then we were just saying, this is what we could give. That's why the number changed from 300 to 380 because I believe there was a little bit more money in there to throw 80 more dollars in, but it actually went to more employees. I'd asked about increasing it to the federal poverty level because the number we were using was basically nobody. <laughs> it was a very small amount of the retirees that were getting it. But even when we're looking at this budget, it'd be interesting to see if we included every retiree. I think that's one of the issues too, is that yes, we've been doing these supplements, but we've left out a whole group of employees, mainly the people who continuously come and lobby us for it, that they're not getting anything um, out of it. We've always given it to a, a smaller group. Um, and what that contribution, uh, what the actual, I think we had asked what a retiree, you know, is actually getting, what the average is, um, how much they're actually getting that year um, from it. So I, I, I'm interested in seeing if we continued with the supplement path, just um, what would it cost to give everybody um, a certain amount of money as opposed to just sectioning off a, a smaller piece or maybe we change it this time and the people who've been getting the uh, supplement, um, we move it to the next group that haven't been getting it um, depending on budgets and how much money we have in the forecast. Or the 1%, you know, COLA, just what that would end up costing us after all the numbers work out as we get closer to the budget because you're still giving us estimates, I assume, right. on this. So there's uh, around 3,850 retirees in the plan. <coughs> they gave everybody 500 bucks. It's around $2 million off the top, just in round figures. Okay. And if that was out of the general fund, it would not impact the funding ratios? If it was passed through, it would not. Would not. It, unless, again, it's a pattern, and then we have to... Right. Right. Mr. Ray? Yeah. And that was my question. Um, we've done it three previous years, and so if we did it again, that would, would that send a flag up for a pat as a pattern? Uh, I think it may, but again, because you've been giving it to a small number of fairly low-paid retirees and not huge dollar amounts, it's not going to increase it as much as this. It's just going to increase it a little bit if we were to say this is a permanent feature. But if we, you know, could, you know, find it uh, a way to just give a 2%, you know, COLA, mm -hmm. and we haven't done it in a while, then that doesn't send a flag up as a, as a, uh, as a, uh, as a pattern. Uh, but it would just cost us something we had to pay off over five years, and that would cost us million dollars a year over five years. Well, 2% would be about 18 million. 18 million. Over 4% over five years. Yeah, 2% would be double the, this column on page okay. 11. Yeah. Okay. This is only 1%. Okay. And does 1% have an impact on a on an employee? Um, because doesn't insurance or something go up to kind of offset that? I mean, what, I mean, does 1%? You know, I guess it depends upon employee to employee. Right. You know? It depends upon the size of your yeah. benefit as yeah. to how much of that is. But if I, if I were to, uh, you know, to support a coal, I think I would yeah, I would take a deep breath and uh, support 2%. 1% might not have an impact on the employee. Matter of fact, it would have probably more of an impact on us. 
possible. <laughs> All right. I think is that your last slide? <laughs> that is the last slide. Yep. All right. Um, uh, Dr. Wibley. So, what about a what is the comparison to BRS, or is that just too too entailed and complicated for this setting? I mean, what is their rate of return? What what um, are they getting COLAs? Um, why are we not in BRS? I, I, you don't have to answer. <laughs> <laughs> there actually is a reason, and for the Galen, can you remind us what there was? There was a reason. We actually looked at seeing if we were to convert the plan into <coughs> BRS. And there was an impact, I believe, that was negative. I can't remember to the participant. Do you, uh, do you know? Or Mary Lou, do you know? Um, that we had an actuary um, compare our plan to the VRS, and the biggest difference is that the VRS does have an automatic COLA. That our um, percentage rates and other variables are very similar, but we do not have an automatic COLA, uh, and so that uh, it makes. Um, our, our plan costs substantially less. So that if you joined VRS, which is still an option, there's a process to do so, the amounts that you'd be contributing would be substantially uh, larger, that you'd have a, a much larger unfunded portion. You, and does be, VRS have the employee? Yes, they have 5% uh, also. And yes. their rate of return is? I don't know the rate of return. You might have it on that list you were looking at that over 90% of government plans in Virginia are in VRS. I know that, but what I meant is, I, I are they getting the same amount of return? Are their assumptions similar to ours? Um, I, I'm not yes. sure. It's in the 7% range. Around. Seven and a quarter, seven, I can't remember. Seven I think they just recently lowered it to seven. But again, that's kind of what we're seeing on page 11. Is with no COLA, you're at 84% funded. With 3% COLA, you're at 64% funded. So depending on what the COLA assumption they would use <coughs> to value your liabilities, you'd be somewhere between those, but closer to the 64 than the 84 that you're at now. Because a COLA costs money. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Manager. Yes, sir. I think your next presentation, and obviously it's uh, posted to the town board, but Love to have you stick around, but not, I don't think you'll hurt council's feelings if you slide out. <laughs> Never give them 15 seconds. Let's don't go too far, man. Stretch break. Stretch at your seat. How are you? Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for coming, sir. Good to see you. So we are So we're going to get started. Um, you remember back in September we established the Naval uh, Station, Norfolk Naval Station Centennial Commission, and we charged it with planning activities to celebrate base 100th anniversary. Karen Schuberger, who was kind enough to agree uh, at my request to serve as the Commission's Vice Chair, is here to brief us on the Commission's activities. But before I turn over to Karen, I do see two of the Commission members in our presence. Uh, we have uh, Robert Blondin and Admiral Jack Kavanaugh are both here. And Karen, we're pleased to hear from you and your Commission members if they so desire to make any comments. Thank you. Good afternoon, Mayor Alexander, members of council, City Manager Smith. Um, the vision of our commission um, is that throughout 2017, the City of Norfolk will recognize the 100-year anniversary of Naval Station Norfolk through a series of events and celebrations that reflect the highest regard the city has for our shared history and community. And to achieve that vision and that goal, the commission has planned a full and very diverse 12-month campaign. And our campaign message is this. Norfolk, Navy proud, 100 years. And you'll notice in the bottom right corner is the official logo that uh, the Naval Station Norfolk created for the centennial. So we've incorporated that into our message. And you'll see how this is going to play out throughout the course of the year. We organized our efforts into three categories, commemoration events, a marketing campaign, and business and community outreach. Once the commission was established last fall, we invited uh, all of the city's arts, education, cultural, <coughs> sports, and entertainment partners to consider including the Navy Centennial as part of their 2017 plans. And the response has been extremely positive, with more than 35 events confirmed to date and several more in the works. <clears throat> combined with the, I know it might be hard to read this, but combined with the Navy's official Centennial programs, the timeline of events starts this month, it actually starts in a few days, and runs through the end of the year. The following events that I'm about to, to walk you through have all agreed to incorporate the centennial theme into their program and are completely funded by their own sponsoring organizations without any additional city support. <clears throat> we start in a few days out Naval Station Norfolk with an event centered around the Jamestown exhibition and on row 
um, the homes that are there. That's the official kickoff on the Navy side. And a few days later, or the next day actually, um, we'll have the official Navy 100 press conference on January 27th that'll coincide with the press conference for the military tattoo with the Virginia Arts Festival. Moving into February, we have the Norfolk Admirals on February 10th are hosting a military appreciation night. And if you look closely, you can see how they've already incorporated the Navy logo into their marketing campaign. And on March 9th, MEAC will be hosting the Hoops for Troops program at Scope. <clears throat> Moving into April, we have the first of several exhibits and symposiums that will be taking place at the MacArthur Memorial. The first on April 8th is over here, over there. It's an exhibit and a World War I symposium. A few days later, we have, with Norfolk Sister Cities Association, they'll be including the centennial as part of their fourth annual passport to Norfolk City Cities over at the New Main. The Virginia International Tattoo will include a tribute to the centennial in a significant way. That's the weekend of April 27th through the 30th. And just prior to that, over at Nauticus in the forecourt, they've just announced that the, the wall that heals, it's the Vietnam moving wall, will be open to the public on April 22nd, 23rd, also tying in with the centennial. Moving into May, we have uh, two NRO, NROTC commissionings that Norfolk State is hosting and theming with the centennial. The first is May 5th or 6th. And then a few days later, Visit Norfolk will incorporate the centennial in the Norfolk Champions of Tourism Rally on May 9th. May 18th through, the, through September 24th over at the Chrysler Museum is the Thomas Hart Benton in the Navy exhibition. And what's really significant about this ex exhibition is that Mr. Benton actually served at Naval Station Norfolk. So that'll be uh, special on lots of levels. <clears throat> on April 29th is the city's Memorial Day celebration, or cer ceremony, excuse me, that uh, is um, part of the Mayor's Advisory Commission on Veterans Affairs. Moving into June, the second event at MacArthur Memorial is the Midway Symposium. The next event on June 8th, the future of the Navy Forum is tentative at this point. Uh, former Mayor um, uh, Paul Frame uh, with the Slover Foundation is uh, working towards developing the future of the Navy Forum on June 8th, which would precede the Harbor Fest weekend, which is next, June 9th through 11th. And that'll coincide with a, um, a historic tour um, celebrating the uh, 100 years uh, forward from the uh, Jamestown exhibition. We worked with um, Jack in the Freemason District back in um, <clears throat> 2007 for Sale, Virginia, and sort of brought to life the whole Freemason area, much of which was developed um, for the Jamestown exhibition. Moving uh, further into June, Pride Fest at Town Point Park on June 17th will incorporate the centennial. And then the signature protocol event, if you will, for the centennial will be on June 28th at the Half Moon, and that's being planned by the Navy League. On June 30th, back to the Naval Station at McClure Field will be a Navy commemorative softball game. That's one of the Navy's signature events for the centennial. The end of the month will feature a couple of events that are all tied in with, with the fireworks and the July 4th events. July 1st will be a Tides Navy Centennial game at Harbor Park, and the city's two official Fourth of July and fireworks shows will both have tributes to the centennial. June 30th, we're out at Ocean View Beach Park, and on July 4th, we're downtown. Staying in July, um, again back at MacArthur Memorial, is their third symposium. It's the Virginia State World War I, World War II Teacher Symposium. 
and a few days later, back at the base, is the 100 years of air power at Chambers Field. Again, another one of the Navy's signature events. <clears throat> In August, the Tidewater Winds, who we're all familiar with, they present concerts all through the region. Uh, but on August 23rd, their Norfolk concert will be a John Williams celebration with an Atlantic Fleet, uh, with Atlantic Fleet participation and tribute to the centennial. And they will carry that throughout all of their regional concerts, not just in Norfolk. Um, we have September 9th, the Virginia Opera in the Park will also include a patriotic tribute. And then on September 31st, tentative at this point, but the Navy is, is working um, out the plans for a Navy Blue Angels flyover over some part of the city. We're not sure which part, um, but we'll be tracking those details with the Navy. <clears throat> We're also working with WHRO in September. Uh, they'll be uh, presenting the Ken's Bur Ken Burns Vietnam PBS series and they're working with PBS to find a way to include the, the Centennial as a part of that program. And another event that is still in the works um, is 100 years um, with the Naval Station Norfolk Mural, and some city departments are involved in that. Moving into October, uh, Downtown Norfolk Council is using their October 6th, First Fridays event as a Centennial celebration. And a few days, uh, the next day, in Town Point Park, the Virginia Children's Festival is developing a whole program of family events and activities that will tie in um, with our Navy message. And then the final symposium at the MacArthur Memorial is October 11th, Operation Touch. The last event on the screen is one that we're really excited about and we're hoping that it does come to fruition. There's a GI Film Fest. It's considered the, the military Sundance. Um, this has been taking place the last three years in Washington. And they contacted me um, back in the fall and asked if, if they would, uh, if Norfolk would consider uh, being the new home for this film festival. Apparently it's extremely successful, but they'd like to be right here in the military community. It normally is in the spring, but they're willing to move the date in October so that it will coincide with the Navy's um, highlight event in the centennial and that's Fleet Fest on October 21st back at the Naval Station to promote the modern day Naval Station Norfolk where the public will be invited and as you know it's not often the public gets to go on base to tour ships but they'll have a number of ships open a lot of activities and different things going on on October 21st. Um, also in the fall either October or November both Old Dominion and Norfolk State have expressed keen interest in taking one of their home games and dedicating that uh, to the centennial. <clears throat> we have several Veterans Day programs in November, again incorporating the theme. The first is at Old Dominion University on November 9th, MacArthur Memorial November 11th, Norfolk State has a date that's yet to be determined but they'll definitely be including their program in the schedule. Uh, Mary Miller and the Downtown Norfolk Council already are developing the plans to uh, theme the Grand Illumination Parade with the Centennial, so that'll be a nice way to cap the end of the season. I've added the Virginia Zoo. The date hasn't been determined, but sometime in the fall, they'll be uh, hosting their Military Appreciation Day. And the folks out at the Botanical Gardens um, have agreed to incorporate the Centennial theme in the Dominion Million Ball Walk and the Gardens of Light um, Lights through December, November and December. The final, but not the last event of the, of the year that's going to be uh, brought to the schedule, but for this calendar, the final uh, NROTC commissioning at, at Norfolk State will be December 8th or 9th. <clears throat> it was determined that among the 35-plus Norfolk events, we would select one event to use as a high-profile platform to celebrate the centennial and Norfolk's partnership with the Navy. 
Norfolk Harbor Fest was selected to serve as this platform event because of its 40-year history with the <coughs> Navy and its ability to host and entertain thousands of residents and visitors in downtown and on the waterfront. And so for this occasion, we'll be inviting all who serve and have served at Naval Station Norfolk to enjoy a special Harborfest homecoming. We selected Harborfest because it's the single largest attended event in Norfolk as well. Harborfest is the largest, longest-running free maritime and military festival in the nation. We have over 300 attendees currently attending. Um, next year, with all the other downtown attractions open, I'm sure those numbers will go up. Currently, 25% are out of market, and those out of market, 40% are staying in Norfolk hotels. We already see close to 20% active or retired military participating, 35% are first-time at attendees. 98% reported that they visited other Norfolk attractions and businesses while they were attending. Harborfest, 63% reported um, that they liked um, downtown more after attending Harborfest. I think I skipped over one of the, the more important ones. Close to $18 million is reported in visitor spending just over the three days of Harborfest. And 87% rated their experience as very good and excellent um, during their Harborfest experience. For the occasion, we are ramping up the parade of sail. It will be the salute to the Navy. I've already met with um, the CEO out at Naval Station Norfolk, and they're looking at how they can um, increase the naval assets in the parade. The fireworks tribute will be 100% dedicated to the, um, to the um, occasion. Uh, Travis Tritt just um, confirmed today he'll be the national performer with a patriotic show before the fireworks. Um, we'll also have the opportunity at Harborfest for public city and commonwealth proclamations, patriotic concerts, military ceremonies, a lot of in-water sea demonstrations as well as air and on land and several diplomatic and protocol opportunities um, that become part of an event like this. We haven't announced it to the public yet, but we have six Class A tall ships this year and four from other nations who are very, very excited to be in Norfolk and be part of the international tribute to um, Naval Station Norfolk. Now I move into our marketing campaign, and the following campaign has been proposed to city staff for their review and consideration. Our goal here is that residents, businesses, visitors, and the Navy community will know that Norfolk is a proud Navy town. Through advertising Norfolk's Naval Station Centennial message through a variety of traditional and grassroots means. <clears throat> we'll market our message through our community commemorative, commemorative events, through our website, social media, our hashtag, through outdoor billboard advertising, not just in Norfolk, but in the surrounding communities, HRT bus signage, bumper stickers, window decals, tabletop tents, all those things mass-produced to put in the hands of our residents and visit visitors to help push this message out. And then we'll also continue to explore other avenues in our neighborhoods and businesses. The next slide um, <clears throat> is, uh, is the copy uh, of one ad that's already been placed, and this has been put into the Navy base guide and map, which reaches all commands, new active duty personnel, visitors, and contractors. Now we're moving into organizing our outreach plans and working with our civic leagues, um, our Norfolk schools, our local businesses to extend the marketing message, and our fundraising uh, to businesses and individuals for sponsorships and donations. So in summary, I think we're well on our way um, with our Norfolk Navy Proud 100-year campaign with exceptionally strong community support and with many meaningful ways for our neighborhoods 
to major businesses to participate and support this very important historic event and Norfolk's very rich military history. So I'm happy to answer any questions. Any questions? Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, Andrea. Are there tons of events? And I'd love to go to each and every one of them. <laughs> but is there a way that you can highlight those events that we should go ahead and put on our calendar for? We've um, we've actually provided, we took this calendar and put another filter through it and have identified, I think there's 16 events that we feel, feel are appropriate for city leadership to be involved in some high-profile way. And we've shared that list um, with, with the mayor and with Breck and with Adisa. So now it's a matter of, you know, really drilling that down so that um, it can be shared with council so you all will be able to put these things on your calendar. Karen, you may want to add that. Most of these events were already planned, Correct. and uh, the organizers have decided to celebrate and honor the Navy uh, right. by incorporating uh, salute and, and right. activities to uh, to highlight uh, the Navy's contribution to the to the region. Um, one of the things I think that we need to do as the council and more more so Doug is to look at uh, what the signature event. It's going to cost our event, uh, our salute, uh, and so we'll be looking forward to some numbers uh, that you would give to Doug. <coughs> We've seen some preliminary conversation with Brack, so we'll prepare for that conversation. But I will say that it, it's it's a um, <clears throat> it shouldn't come as a surprise, but it's certainly rewarding and and um, feels wonderful when so quickly. The community responded when we sent the invitation out. It, it wasn't 24 hours oh, yeah. before we started hearing. And there are other events that aren't on here because they're still working through the details. So the beauty of having a, um, a website and a marketing plan is that other, as other things are added, we'll be able to continue to push those out. Has anybody worked with Visit Norfolk on creating packages for um, veterans to come back to Norfolk to celebrate some of these events um, with hotels, that there's a package deal to come back. Because the way that we get our money back is by bringing people in, back into Norfolk. So we're doing a lot of celebrating and getting people internally to come to these events. But it's getting it out to people who've moved to California to come to one of those weekends and they get a package deal that they can attend events or and they stay in one of our hotels? And the answer is yes. Um, working with Naval Station Norfolk, they have access to all the contact information for people that have, have ever been on Naval Station Norfolk. So assuming that that information is still accurate via email and other forms, but also advertising at a market. I have spoken with Tony and Donna Allen, and I've briefed them on the concept. Um, and once we're able to... Um, uh, work through some of our marketing plans and the plans th that we presented to the city. We'll be ready to move forward with that. But Donna and Tony DiFilippo and Donna Allen are standing by ready. Um, they know about it actually at their executive uh, council meeting tomorrow. It's on the agenda to brief their group. Thank you, Karen. Okay. Thank you. So, Mr. Manager, I think we're ready to break. Yep. yep. Take a break, and we're gonna, Mr. Riddick, I think we're gonna grab some. Stuff, and we'll come back to close. All right. Stuff would be food. That would be food. All the young. Well, we do have a lot of surprise. 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 Sur
I'm going to tag team this with her uh, more to get out of the way of the screen than, than anything else. Come on over here, Suzanne. And uh, <coughs> a couple of things. You can keep going. Oh, you know I got it. Um, so here's well, tonight. We're gonna we're gonna try and frame the retreat a little bit for you. Uh, I'm gonna talk to you real quickly about sort of the communication between my office, the city manager's office, and council, and the commitments that we've made to you all. That I uh, just want you thinking through before we get to the retreat itself. Um, uh, recap what happened in September and talk about sort of what we've done since then, but also what we're doing to get prepared um, for uh, this next piece. Um, really what we're trying to do is create space for you all to have um, the, the phrase, I think Martin may have coined it, was these substantive deliberations, to get up there at that 30,000 feet and really talk about the, the, particularly those six issues, but the things that are that are driving the um, the uh, the economic development and the, and the growth of the, of the city. Um, those conversations are going to also drive the budget. So that's where we're going to we're going to put the resources behind the things that you all say um, at this retreat and the past receipt retreat are important. Uh, we talked a little bit. You got a presentation um, in your packets about communication on the tenth. We're going to kind of give you an overview of the agenda uh, tonight. Um, and then on the 13th and 14th, and we're, we're, we're a little goofed up on dates. We've got a couple of folks that have got problems on the 13th, so we've got to regroup a little bit on when we're going to actually have the retreat. But we're going to talk, what I've heard you all say is you want some time to talk about the work of council and, what, and how you all function as a body, uh, the kinds of principles we've heard, or sort of the, the committee of the one, that it's a, a group that's going to handle uh, issues at, as a body. Um, one of the things I would tell you is, is, is that City Council is, is the model for the community for, for process and interaction, um, and that you all create the vision and then we implement the things that, that, that drive us to that vision. A um, lot of conversation online and offline about logistics of meetings, so the retreat is a chance to sort of close that out. Um, there's been meeting frequency, framework of meetings. Uh, do we add a Tuesday night, uh, uh, first Tuesday kind of conversation? What might that look like? Um, uh, what sort of the topics, and then we'll have some um, priorities discussions, and you all wanted to have um, some, some conversation about ethics, so the, the attorney is going to drive us through that piece. Um, 
Uh, in terms of what we're doing right, I just want you to know how we're communicating with you today. So I meet with uh, each of you face-to-face, -face, uh, generally on a monthly basis. We do, uh, if when necessary, we'll get you two at a time to talk about uh, sensitive topics, or each of you has a deputy city manager that, that keeps up with you and, and answers questions in a, in a timely manner. We're obviously on the phone. We're on email. Uh, we give you the daily headlines uh, summary so you know what, what's uh, uh, Norfolk in the news. Uh, we let you know if we've gotten a call from Eric or somebody that says, hey, uh, I'm looking at this topic or that topic, just to give you a heads up of, of what things are, are of interest. Things we're exploring are um, really uh, um, you all hearing from our office on a structured weekly basis every Friday. You'll get the five things, that you know, key things that happened this week. Uh, we're going to do a city manager's update that's a packet of information for you uh, that gives you things. Right now it feels like you get things, a little bit of an email here, a paper there, but try and do it in a little more of a um, coordinated fashion. The commitments I've made to you all offline, uh, but I think it's good to hear publicly, are that we don't bring things to you and ask you to vote on them that same night, if, if at all possible. Cause that's, just, that's not fair to you, it's not fair to the community. Um, that we provide, and we've started this, that we give you the information for your <coughs> meetings that Thursday before your Tuesday meetings. And so you're seeing the presentations and all the docket uh, Thursday nights. So you get almost a week uh, to put things together um, that we give you that information in an even way so everybody's getting the same information. I've heard that from you uh, loud and clear so that we stay aligned with you all relative to policy, but also relative to public information. And then one of the things I want you to think through, you've got six priorities, and those priorities are um, public safety, public education, uh, and housing. And uh, those three really drive economic development. They really drive the economy. The other three, infrastructure, resilience, and technology, they are really how we're going to reconfigure this city to reinforce the things that you want to do around housing, safety, and education. And so that's the conversation that, that you all have been having, want to continue to have. And what we're laying out for you tonight is um, that we take each of those priorities and, and theme them just in the dates that you can see here. Uh, for each work session that you have, one of those topics will be the primary topic of conversation that night. So if we're in a meeting and, we, and, and somebody brings up an interesting idea about resilience, we can say, you know, Martin, great idea, but we're talking about resilience uh, in, in two meetings, so hold that, hold that thought until that point. But you know that you've gotten each of those topics has been talked about in this room three times each year. So I think that helps you really get to that, that high-level conversation. So I'm going to ask Suzanne to take a moment and just talk you through uh, what's going to go on on the perhaps 13th and 14th. Good evening, Mr. Mayor, Council Members. First, thank you for having me back. Um, I'm um, delighted to continue to build on the momentum um, from the September retreat. Uh, and we are looking at this as kind of the second part of, of that work. Um, as you'll recall very briefly, you prepared for that first retreat with um, interviews with Dr. Amy Batista. Um, it was very clear that you wanted more conversation, fewer presentations. Um, really focus on four to five topics, um, share the vision of Norfolk being a great city for everyone. Um, we spent uh, a day really on high levels, strategic conversations on the three uh, topic areas of public safety, education, housing. Um, and the idea was is that in this next, um, in part two of the retreat, we would have those same kinds of conversations around infrastructure, resilience, and technology. 
Um, the staff has already worked on some of those identified objectives um, on a priorities. You've got this, I believe, in your packet. Um, this is uh, mainly to kind of give you the sense that as you all talk about things at that strategic level, work does happen at the operational level um, on, those, on those priorities. So um, for this next, um, for the next retreat, uh, the staff will be preparing booklets for you all that encompasses this information. And, um, and we have one small homework assignment um, for you all, which is we'd like for you to be thinking about resilience, technology, and um, infrastructure and bring with you um, that kind of one big idea, one big idea that you have for each of those topic areas. Again, as city council um, members, as you know, the leadership of the city, you know, what, what's the one big thing in those three areas that, that you'd like to see? And then we'll, we'll, we'll have a conversation about that, uh, much as we did uh, with education and public safety. Uh, again, do some work on prioritizing those things. And, um, and yes, try not to. Um, and uh, so that, again, you've got direction um, that drives budget, um, you've got direction that drives your agenda um, and gives you the discipline um, and the confidence to know that those large-scale priority areas are, are going to be addressed. Um, I think we have a copy of the draft agenda um, for your review. Um, spend a little bit of time. Mr. Oliver is going to come in, give kind of the theoretical framework um, discussion, and then we'll move on from there. Uh, thank you, Suzanne. So here's the chat. Oh, I'm sorry. Could we get an email on our homework assignment? Sure. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming from a teacher. I like it. Thank you. All right. So here's one of the challenges we have. We're going to lose at least two of you on the Monday the 13th. We've just had things come up that, that uh, were unexpected. Um, and so you've got three options that we need to think through really in the next 24 hours, if not tonight. You can move forward, leave things like they are, less those two council persons. I'd really recommend against that. Um, I think this is important stuff that all eight of you need to participate in. I think I think we can flip the dates and do the the personnel kind of stuff Monday afternoon. I think uh, I think everybody can be there Monday afternoon and have that piece, and then have the fuller retreat and the things we just talked through on Tuesday. I'm not sure. I just haven't been able to poll everybody as to whether folks are available for that for Tuesday. And then the third one is um, we go for we, we got to go for a new date uh, other than. Um, the 14th. And then if we do that, then we would need actually need to have a council meeting on the 14th. Uh, you remember we got a couple items that you were going to deal with uh, the morning of the retreat. Sure. All right, Mayor. So that's that's uh, that's the retreat. Need a little bit of feedback. And I know Bernard needs five minutes on the um, uh, special election conversation. Dr. Wibbley. First, I have to apologize. Uh, Oh, Mr. Pisco. Uh, this is on the uh, vacancy in the uh, treasurer's, uh, I mean, the uh, sheriff's office. The sheriff is, re good the sheriff is resigning on February the 1st. Um, state law uh, requires this council 
to petition uh, the circuit court within 15 days of February the 1st and either ask for a special election, which could be on the general election date along with the general election, or ask that there be no special election and that there only be a general election in November. Um, uh, uh, those are the council's choices and the statute asks that the council, directs the council to do it within 15 days of February the 1st. So tonight was the last uh, meeting that you had scheduled to, to do this. Um, that's it uh, in a nutshell. Um, I, there's other uh, variables, but well, with the shortness of time, is there, are there any questions? Um, Mr. Fishkrow, um, I don't have any questions, but I, I do think that, that the undershare or uh, <coughs> Mr. Joe Barron will probably assume the responsibility and tax it on yes, February that, the 1st. That, that's correct. The statute uh, appoints the most senior uh, Norfolk resident, the most senior deputy, uh, to, to act in the interim. So on February the 1st, uh, Joseph P. Barron, who is the uh, senior deputy, will assume the, the, the position. Uh, he will serve until a special election or um, January after a general election. And the citywide special election will cost the taxpayers how much? Uh, I, um, Stephanie's here, but I would just throw out 75000 for citywide. That's a safe. Mr. Fisher, I would recommend that we not hold a special election and allow that term to expire uh, in, I believe it's January the 1st, that term. December 31st, December 31st. correct. Yes. That'll be my recommendation. So, so we'll add an ordinance tonight uh, um, um, to petition the court to not hold a special election. A general election will occur in November, um, that the interim will serve the remainder of the year, and that the person elected in the November general election will assume the office in January. Yes, sir. That's the ordinance that you'll have before you tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Mayor, my, my one question is how, how we're going to nail down the dates of this uh, retreat. Uh, February the 14th. Is there anybody that can't do if we flip flop? Is there anybody that's not available in the fourth? Miss Johnson, I feel like you had a potential conflict, so I don't want to put words in your mouth. February. I want all of us to be together. Right. What time is it supposed to be over on the 14th? Because please remember it's Valentine's Day. And I would love to be with you during that time. My wife would get angry. Yes. You tell us what time it needs to be over, and that's when we'll end. Fourteenth is good for Dr. Wibberley. Fourteenth is good February. So we do that after the afternoon. Maybe you good. One personnel Monday afternoon. We can do that. And what time on the thirteenth? Thirteenth. It's Terry. Terry, what time are you getting? Because I, I have a conflict will, in the morning, but I, I can't. Will be I, the air, I will arrive at one thirty, so I could get here by two. But you could get started on some of that other stuff. Well, let's, what, why don't we start with probably, probably lunch, and then we'll start the program uh, right after that. So that will probably be the time. So I think I've got enough to, you're giving me Tuesday afternoon and most of Monday to figure this stuff out. We'll, 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 we'll plug it in. Monday afternoon. Monday afternoon. Tuesday, you're good. And are we doing dinner on Monday night? Yes, since we can't do it on Tuesday. Doesn't sound yeah, like we're going to do it on Tuesday. Yeah. And I meant to ask the retirement board, you know, and but then again, that might not have been the uh, group to ask. But have we been using 
funds from the retirement system to help pay salaries? Well, the, the answer is no. That, that would be a breach of fiduciary duty and the trust. The trust is separate mm -hmm. uh, so that um, as the retirement city's lawyer, I, I have no indication that the retirement fund has been invaded. But okay. Will you check it out? Yes, sir. Okay. okay. So we're seeing you upstairs.